From Neon Hum, this is Dirt Cheap. I'm Jeffrey Golden. And I'm Amanda Meadows. And we're reading a fun little book called Murder in the Glass Room. And uh, have you ever heard of these authors, Edwin Rolfe and Lester Fuller? <laughs> no, not at all. Do they ring a, those names ring a bell? No, no. No, yeah. Well, Amanda, uh, as I said, uh, Phil isn't much of a hero, um, but boy, did they get into, uh, did Phil and Shelly get into some scrapes <laughs> last time on Dirt Cheap. Okay, so in the first half of chapter 15, you know, they, they meet at Fairfax in third. Absolutely, you know, the they farmers go, they market. They go to the farmers market. The L.A. It's farmers huge. market. I, we also forgot how huge the farmers market was. Then it was like two or three city blocks <laughs> long or something. Anyway, they uh, they eat and it's furtive and awkward and hurried and shushed. And as they're leaving, a bomb goes off. Yeah. It's like all of a sudden we were in a MacGyver episode. Yeah, it basically, was, it, it was this very was, strange. This was back to this was back to back with the uh, with Willie jumping out yep. the window, right? Yes. So they're really erratic. The, shit is happening. The trailer moments for this movie are happening all at the end. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter fifteen, part two. It was 2.30 when I opened the door of Carlos's restaurant and motioned Shelly in ahead of me. Carlos and Rosa were seated at a table in the furthest corner of the room. Carlos saw me first. He shouted, Hello, amigo, through a mouthful of food. Rosa looked up at me from her chair but didn't move. She didn't even change expression. No smile, nothing. I went over to her and kissed her on the forehead. I was worried about you, I said. You ought to worry about yourself a little, Rosa replied. She was glad to see me, but she was too vexed to let on. I introduced Shelly to them. Carlos was the perfect host, gracious and good-humored. But Rosa looked her over carefully, directly, sizing her up. She did that always, with all people, but especially with my friends. Shelly and I sat down at the table. You both look like you need something to eat, Rosa said. And drink, said Carlos. (laughs) I love Carlos. Carlos. We've said it before. Yeah. Best character in the book. Absolutely. <laughs> Hands down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I used to like Rosa more, but I don't, the writers are confused about Rosa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> about what they're trying to direct us to believe about her. All of a sudden, she is acting weird. Uh, hmm. Suspicious. Like, like a like a murderer, perhaps. <laughs> he rarely brings someone with him, and usually when he does, it's like with no explanation. <laughs> right. So, so, so like naturally, know. she's become suspicious of his dates and of his friends. Yeah, yeah. And drink, said Carlos. He disappeared into the kitchen and came back a moment later carrying a huge earthenware bowl. He put it down in the center of the table and disappeared again, saying, Now for the wine. Rosa removed the lid from the bowl, and the steam surged up toward the ceiling. Paella Valenciana. Rice, colored yellow with saffron, richly studded with the meat of chicken. 
richly studded with the meat of chicken. The meat of a chicken. <laughs> How exotic. How, you know. Again, I, I take the meat. From the chicken. Yeah. Which one do do I think is the one writing the weird <laughs> stuff again? Is it Edwin Rolf? The I think one? we were thinking Ed, Edwin Rolf was the, the weird the one, one. Yeah. Like he seems like the one who would say richly studded with, <laughs> with the meats of the chicken. Soon Carlos returned with two bottles of wine. We spoke very little during the meal, Shelly and I. Rosa, too, was unusually silent. Every now and then I found her regarding Shelley with gentle, appraising eyes, and occasionally I surprised her, looking at me the same way. I surprised her looking at me the same way. It was Carlos, with his fine tact and humor, who contributed the gaiety and the conviviality. We were finishing our coffee when Carlos said, too bad, amigo, that that man was out of town. Yeah, I said. It's too bad. Shelley sat up. What man? Carlos said. Stanley, I wish for your sake, amigo, that he had been in town when... But he wasn't, I said. It was immaterial to me now anyway. How do you know? Shelley asked. I know, I said wearily. Carlos checked on him. How do you know? Shelley said again. What do you mean? I asked. Shelley spoke slowly. Listen to me, Phil. What Carlos says holds no water. Not actually. All right, he did check with the ticket office. He did find out that somebody who called himself Stanley left on the three o'clock plane. But what did the passenger look like? I didn't think of that, Carlos said. You see, Shelley said, he didn't find that out. What proof have you got that it really was Stanley who left by that plane? How do you know? I didn't know. Ah, <laughs> oh, there's so Shelley. much. There's so much to unpack here. Again, the only <laughs> woman with sense. I got some I got my luggage here. I got yeah. my big suitcase here. Uh-huh. I'm wheeling it over. I'm going to unzip it. We're going to open it up. We're going to unpack a lot of things. Yes. Here. First of all, Shelly, a newspaper woman, knows how to actually look things up and offered to do it. She sure did. That was one of the first things she offered to do was, oh, this is easy, Phil. I can look up at the ticket office. And he was like, no, I've got Carlos on it. Carlos, who doesn't have any skills that we know of. Like, we know he was a soldier. Like, we know he was in the war. But it's not, as we pointed out chapters ago... It's not like he was a spy who investigates things. Exactly. Not like, right. He, he was just Carlos, a guy who was around. <laughs> we like Carlos. We all love Carlos. Yeah, we like him because of his personality and the fact that he's attached to Phil's mother figure. Right. Uh, it's the only reason you would trust Carlos more than Shelly is just a wild, <laughs> silly presumption. Like, it's just an emotional response. Right. Well, no, I guess he was, at the time... Phil was like, oh, I don't want too many people checking in on this. But like... Again, Phil doesn't have like logic on yeah, his side. He's, right. Yeah, he's not really good at thinking these things through. Well, also like what would happen? Like what would happen? Like, yeah, it'd be weird maybe for that ticket person, assuming it was the same ticket person all day long, <laughs> exactly. you know, every day. Um, but like Stanley isn't wanted for murder. It's not like Stanley is a suspicious figure, you know. Very true. 
Here's something else. Yes. This is terrible mystery writing. Oh, it's so bad. This is one of the worst things I have encountered in a mystery story. It's so clumsy. It's so, like, just exposed. Like, it's like, we found a knife at the scene. Well, but how do you know it's a knife? What if it's a spatula? <laughs> you didn't check to see if it was also a spatula. Like, if you were reading this book and, like, trying to solve the mystery, I would just throw the book across the room. Oh, yeah. You are not sat. You are not going to be satisfied it's, at any point. It's like, treated like that's, like, the big twist. It's like Carlos didn't know what he was doing. Yeah, and that, that's, that's like not our a big, twist. It's not a twist. That's not a satisfying twist. not a twist. Right. That's not a satisfying twist. I'm, like, a narrative designer for video games, and, like, one of my gigs right now is, like, writing a murder mystery, and it's, like... Just try, trying to get away with like this kind of writing in that game. We're just, I can't. You can't. You can't. Like there, it just there's just no way for the reader to solve it. And that's like the whole fun of a mystery is like trying to solve it and like figure it out. Yeah, and, the reader's gears are supposed to be turning along with the book, and that's never happened at any point. No, <laughs> in murder uh, in the classroom. So Stanley is back in yeah. play as a potential he, suspect. He sure is. Though, did we ever? Was there ever a time when we did not suspect? Exactly. Was he ever not <laughs> a suspect? <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Maybe you're right, I said. Charlie started to say something, but I cut her short. <laughs> she is a woman after all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, he sure loves doing that. She was too excited. You better get some rest now, I said. Instead of the argument I expected, Shelly seemed to lose all interest in Stanley. She stared curiously at me for a moment and then said quietly, Okay, I think I can go now. Where? Here, I said. Carlos can put you up, can't you, Carlos? For a beautiful woman? Carlos said. My house is always open. The beautiful lady wants to sleep, I said. Not entertainment. Then sleep it will be. Thanks, Carlos. <laughs> Thank you, Carlos. Carlos always reassures. He's no, he's always one to reassure. He sure is. I, I like I like it. Yeah. Even if he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know what he's doing. He never really claimed to know what he was doing. He didn't. He was like, hey, I'm just going to go show up and figure it out. And then afterward, he was like, hey, he was my cool idea. <laughs> I pretended to be like an admiral or something. <laughs> then sleep it will be. He said. What about you? Shelley asked. I want to talk to Rosa. Perhaps Carlos will show Miss Callahan to her room, Rosa suggested. Okay, said Carlos. The Guernica room. He called it that because he had a framed reproduction of a crazy painting by a Spaniard named Picasso on the wall. That guy will never go anywhere, right? <laughs> Picasso. What a dumb name. Some poser <laughs> who scribbles in little baby doodles. <laughs> <laughs> of course, at this point, well, this is 1945. How famous is Picasso at this point? He's, he's, gotten, he's probably gotten, pretty famous. Yeah, there's no So variety. I guess this is just, this is actually, so <laughs> now I mean, I'm thinking about it. It really isn't any of that. It isn't really that at all. This is, I guess, really showing. This is more just like Phil is uncultured. Phil is uncultured. It is like some hack named Picasso that Carlos insists on championing. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Why the Guernica room? asked Rosa. Isn't there a more restful room in the house? Carlos laughed. <laughs> it is the only room with a bed with a beauty rest mattress, Carlos explained. Sweets for the sweet is my principle. Besides, she can turn the picture so it faces the wall. Ready? Carlos asked Shelly. I'm ready, Shelly said. You'll be here, won't you? She said to me, all the time. I won't budge until you wake up. I kissed her and watched them go out of the room. Rosa turned to me after they were out of sight. Very pretty, she said. I'm glad you think so, I said. She's going to be the next Mrs. Norris. So, said Rosa. So, what now, Chico? I don't know. Suddenly, she grabbed my hands. Take my advice, baby, she said. Stay here. It's safe. No one will look for you here. It's too late for that. You must. How do you think I feel knowing the whole town is after you and not knowing where you are or what you're doing? You don't even talk to me anymore, only to say hello and goodbye. I flared up. I know exactly what I'm doing. Which is really funny because a few a few lines ago he said, I don't know. So so it's not it's not that he knows what that he's was doing. Minutes ago. Like. <laughs> yeah, moments seconds ago he said, I don't know. And now he's like, I know exactly what I'm doing. Like whatever you do. You know, don't contradict me or say anything slightly negative about me because then I'll go back on what I said in a minute. It's just crazy. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, yeah, it's a ride. He, he is so scared of vulnerability that he can't like sit with reality for like a second without trying to like will it the other direction. We'll be right back. I flared up. I know exactly what I'm doing. You can't know. Chico, it's like the old times. You thought you knew then, too. I know what I have to do. You don't know. God damn it, I know. And I don't need you to give me advice. Ugh, you, you know. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Someone just strap him down. Just, yeah, just. Until he, he like, just kind of falls asleep. He's going to break up with his mommy over this? It's... The minute the words were out of my mouth, I felt like socking myself. I'd been taking out on Rosa what I felt about Stanley. But I couldn't unsay the words. Rosa's lips were compressed into a thin, angry line. I'm sorry, I forced myself to say. She nodded impatiently. Yes, maybe other people's advice is better than mine. Maybe she can tell you better than me what to do. So it had come out into the open. Rosa was jealous of Shelley. But this kind of jealousy jolted me. It was the possessive resentment one woman carries for another who is casting her eyes at her lover. Of course, I'd known for a long time that it was there. I suppose I'd even felt the same way about her, even though I'd never let it become a conscious thing. But now that it was out, I didn't know what to say. So I picked up my hat and went wordlessly to the door. Wow, what right? What the f- 
fuck? So Phil's interpretation is that is that she is jealous of Shelly. That she is not just suspicious of him because he's brought home a lot of people who are bad. Right. But that, but that, oh, I want to be dating. I want to be dating Phil. Now, here's the funny thing. He's like, I suppose I felt the same about her, even though I'd never let it become a conscious thing. He literally asked her. He literally was like... What is the chapter? It's yeah, literally, yeah, please, it, please pull it up. We need the receipts. You know, Rosa, yes, Chico? Rosa, you should have been 15 years younger. Go to sleep. Or I should have been 15 years older. She kissed me again. Either way, baby, I'd never have been good for you. Never. I don't know, Phil says. I know, she said, never. <laughs> <laughs> she made it. So clear. It's very, (laughs) in a way that makes it seem like this is like the 30th time that's happened. (laughs) Right. Like every time he's drunk and delirious (laughs) and she's tucking him into bed. Right. What will I tell her? Rosa said to my back. Tell her I'll be back as soon as I can. I had to face it. Maybe it was cruel. Maybe I shouldn't have done it. But I said, don't you like her? Give me time, not even a little. Don't rush me, she said harshly. Give me some time. I don't want to make any snap judgment. Okay, I said, there'll be plenty of time. I went out of the room feeling lousy. Oh, man. What the fuck, Phil? Don't you, don't you immediately love the woman I just brought home who you haven't had a chance to talk to or have a conversation with. No, says Rosa, because I literally just met her. And Phil is like, are you sure you don't immediately love her? It's like, yeah, I'm sure I don't immediately love her. Right. (laughs) What are you talking about? Phil, what is happening? It was getting dark when I ran Shelly's car into the parking lot on North Spring Street and walked the block and a half to the dilapidated office building at number 265. It felt funny coming back to the place where I'd first started my search for Edna's killer. It was bad in the same way as when I'd approached the building for the first time. But then I caught a glimpse of my reflection in the glass doorway, and I didn't feel so squeamish. It was a toss-up as to whether the building or I looked dirtier or more run down. Again, I climbed the five flights and walked up the dark, narrow hallway until I came to room 524. I gripped the knob and pushed, but it didn't give. It was locked. I tried the other two doors, but they were locked too. Nobody was there in any of the rooms, or else whoever was inside was playing possum. In the darkness, my foot scraped against what felt like a heap of papers. I struck a match. The hallway floor was littered with large leaflets. I stooped and picked one up and read it quickly by the matchlight. It was the same leaflet I had seen stacked on the desk on my first visit to Stanley's office. Then I hadn't read it at all. This time I did. Then it had meant nothing to me. This time it told me what my next step was. It read, Veterans United, Mass Meeting, Oracle Auditorium, Tuesday evening, May 24th, 1946, Here, Professor George Stanley, 
soldier, writer, economist, world-famous lecturer on Who Owns America? Phil said, I know exactly what I have to do. He goes back to Stanley's office, and it is locked. So he didn't know exactly what to do. He thought he could just sneak into Stanley's open office and what? Collect a bunch of murder evidence that was in the office that he was keeping? What did... What exactly did did Phil need to do? I don't know if he knew that he didn't know what he was doing when he said, I clearly know what I'm doing <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, I but, guess he was just like, I guess he just felt like he had to leave because the situation with Rosa was too out of control. Uh, and so he was like, I guess I'll go back to Stanley's office. I guess I'll hang around there for a while. Maybe some... Murder evidence will show yeah, up. The only reason he left is pride. And the right. only reason he's out here is pride. And he doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, he doesn't have a go- plan. Yeah, clearly. Because, like, why go to Stanley? I mean, like, if it was just pride, like, why not, like, go to another safe place? Exactly. Like, uh, and then, okay, so he found leaflets. And then he was like, I know exactly what I have to do. Yeah. <laughs> like, if he had run into a flyer that said... Yoga lessons. <laughs> he would have been like, this is it. <laughs> I know exactly what I need to do. I folded the leaflet, slipped it into my coat pocket, and started back to Shelley's car. I walked quickly along the dark, deserted street. Suddenly, a man emerged from a doorway directly in front of me and said, Got a match? I fished one out of my pocket and gave it to him. He struck it, and he held it up to his cigarette. The glow lighted his face. I almost jumped. It was the man in the linen suit, the wheeled basket man of the farmer's market. My hand started for him when my throat was gripped from behind and I felt myself being lifted off my feet. I saw the man in the linen suit flip his cigarette away and then he pushed a short, chopping jab into my gut. I groaned and doubled over in pain. I felt myself being dragged into a hallway and pushed up against the wall. I got a brief glimpse of the other man as I straightened up. It was the huge drunk. Then, without a word, they went to work on me, pummeling my belly and ribs until I dropped. (laughs) Belly, ribs, guts, belly, ribs, guts. Oh yeah, this bing, is bing, a boom. this is a real like exciting fight scene. Absolutely. Like all of them, it just they could they proceeded to punch me a bunch. <laughs> I took the punches <laughs> and felt them, and they were bad <laughs> one after another. <laughs> bam, bam, boom! I was punched. <laughs> <laughs> I remained conscious all the time, in spite of the pain and I knew perfectly what they were doing. It was a scientific beating, calculated to kill. But I... <laughs> Sorry, that's... Wow. Oh, yeah, Professor Professor Norris. <laughs> Science sudden, beatings. All of a sudden, while he's, like, being... <laughs> like, killed to death, he's like, oh, yeah, they're real good at this. <laughs> Yeah, Phil. I would know. I've been given (laughs) beatings by some of LA's finest goons. (laughs) 
Absolutely. He's a real connoisseur of beatings. Of beatings. But I couldn't say a word, and I couldn't do a thing. Even when I was down on the ground, inert, my eyes were wide open, and I saw it coming. But I couldn't lift a hand to shield myself. I couldn't even move. The drunk lifted his boots slowly and aimed a deliberate, vicious, bone-crushing kick at my head. I felt the crack as the foot landed over my ear, and the pain shot through my head and down my spine. But even then, I didn't pass out. I saw the man in the linen suit take something out of his pocket and lower it over me. It was a pistol. I closed my eyes, and then I heard the shot. Somehow, I was still alive. Alive enough to hear footsteps receding. There was excruciating pain in my head and all through my body. I wondered how long it takes for a man with a bullet in his brain to lose consciousness. Then I heard footsteps coming towards me again. I strained hard to see who was coming back. Maybe they'd missed, I thought. But they couldn't have, at that close range. I stared and stared until I saw a figure. It was Murdoch. He stood a few feet away, looking down at me. There was a still smoking pistol in his right hand. Murdoch's back, baby. Murdoch, 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 Murdoch. 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 Uh, we love our crooked cops. Our favorite crooked cop <laughs> in this book. <laughs> what do we think of Murdoch? Why is he here? Yeah, it's a good question. Dude, why are you here? <laughs> hold, hold that thought. Okay. Be right back. I forced myself up, inch by inch, until I was leaning weakly against the wall. I lifted my hand and felt my head, and then I stared at my hand. Murdoch had been on time. Wiping the blood from my mouth with the back of my hand, I looked at Murdoch and said, Thanks. <laughs> Classic Phil. Terse, manly. That's right. Way. To say thanks for saving my life. Um, also, I like how he's like Murdoch was right on time. He's like, I don't know, he could come like a minute sooner. I mean, if we're if we're choosing, if right. we're, if like while we're wishing, right, you know, like yeah, maybe we, he wish. maybe could have come five minutes sooner before you like broke all your bones but or see, whatever. That gets to the argument of like he wanted them to break his bones, like he wants to feel that physical pain. Like I think Murdoch you're right. came right on time, as in he came. After he got a brutal ass kicking. Yeah, I think Phil, maybe he just wants to go in traction. Maybe he just really wants to go to the hospital. Yeah, I think there's something just someone to that. Finally he's gets, a masochist. He's a masochist. I mean, I think that's, I think I think you could make an argument that Phil's a masochist for sure. I, I don't know. He's just so broken and so, so self-hating that it's. I don't know that he's even, like, aware of the ways that he's seeking out pain. No, I don't think so either. Then I straightened up some more. I felt as if I were bleeding inside. Murdoch didn't say a word. Okay, I told him. Take me in now and get your booby prize. But Murdoch didn't move. It was a good grind, I said, while it lasted. 
Murdoch spoke for the first time. It wasn't even a goat race. I've been on your tail all the time. My head jerked up in surprise, and another bolt of pain ran down my spine. This would be another thing where, in a good mystery, you could pull off some interesting examples of, like, moments where it's like, oh, who's that following him? Exactly. Like, you know, and it's like, oh, we could have figured it out, but, like, oh, it was Murdoch following him the whole time. None of that here. It's just, yeah, I was following you because you're bad. Uh, It's just so bad, especially for someone he supposedly knows. Right. Kind of well. Super well. it doesn't it it also makes me question like when like the Hollywood Bowl incident, like was Murdoch there too? Great question. You know, like yeah. is he he must be doing this independently of the rest of his precinct because <laughs> just, otherwise the rest of the police would be like, oh, Murdoch has him, you know. I was just imagining Murdoch watching Phil at the 50 Beautiful Girls Club, like asking all the different people and him just like in the background, just like laughing to himself. Uh, I mean, I guess that's been a fun week for him. (laughs) Yeah. Just follow, like he was was at the tiki bar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just imagining like Murdoch, like smiling, like with a big like pineapple, like watching. Massive like scorpion bowl with like like, dry ice coming off of it and like, like a watching, little parrot. <laughs> just like watching Phil embarrass himself. <laughs> like punching, like not punching that guy, just being like, oh boy, Phil's at it again. Oh, now he's going to talk to this lady. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> this doesn't look good either. <laughs> well, <laughs> time to sit back and do nothing. <laughs> you didn't kill Edna, Phil, he said. I'm sure of it. Then what's all the hurrah for me in the papers? Why have the cops got the heat on for me? Murdoch looked at me sourly. I said, I'm sure. Homicide's got different ideas. We've had quite a lot of discussion on the subject. That's why I don't want to drag you on. Although what they do couldn't be much worse than what you just got. I had to let your two boyfriends get away. Who is going to book them for walloping? Uh, one listener wrote on Twitter, you, you're doing Murdoch with a goofy voice. Why he wouldn't, couldn't you do him with like a tough guy voice? And uh, I thought this would be a good opportunity to address that. <laughs> okay, uh, great. Hello, listener. Uh, I, thank you for your feedback. Phil like introduces him to us as like a dopey cop who isn't, you know, good necessarily good at his job, but he's great at taking bribes. Right. And uh yeah, so, so far that's that's so kind I, of panned I, out. I think, yeah, and I think that comes across in my reading. I think L- so. Listen, if he's supposed to be like a hero cop, I'm making him sound like a dummy. Oh <laughs> 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 like, uh, I think it's also worth pointing out that like old media didn't portray cops as heroes. Oftentimes, cops were portrayed as crooked and boobs. It wasn't until relatively recently Correct. on TV that uh, that copaganda uh, sort of gave cops that sort of hero sheen. For the most part, in media, yeah, cops are are were at, at the were considered bad guys, or at the very least, like. Or like, at the very most, like... Like uh, unscrupulous meatheads. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they weren't considered, like, big heroes. And then it just happened to be that, like, w- 
So Hollywood sort of caught on to the cop formula as being like really good for TV. It's like the yeah. episodic like criminal of the week, crime of the week kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so naturally, like as protagonists, like we're supposed to root for them. So cops morphed into hero characters. They did, yeah. I mean, it kind of started with detectives and people who like did deep, interesting work. Right. Not just like beat cops who were just like <laughs> around to like harass teenagers at right. the mall. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, I mean, there's there's nothing to lionize here. They're just, <laughs> <laughs> they're, they just, they picked the the lowest hanging fruit of their town yeah. <laughs> as a high school graduate. <laughs> Which Phil basically says <laughs> yes. in the book, like multiple times, he's like, cops, like all they do is they just like come to the dump, just come to the most obvious conclusions and then just book people. And Yeah, because uh, they want to get it over with. Right. Yeah, they're so, not like interested in solving something. <laughs> they're not like actually interested in helping. They're <laughs> interested in like fulfilling their obligations so that they can continue doing whatever bullshit that they do. Who did it, Murdoch, if it wasn't me? I've got ideas. Tell me. Murdoch shook his head. If I told you, maybe the ideas wouldn't work out. He turned to go, but stopped. Phil, he said, I told you once before to take it easy. I'm telling you again. So far, you've been luckier than an ace in the hole. But you'll be picked up just as sure as God made little cats. By the way, that's a great expression. I love I love that expression. As sure as, as, sure God, as made God made little cats. Little cats. Little cats. Tiny little cats. Thanks. But I've got ideas, too. Painfully, I walked past him into the street. He kept up with me until I reached the car. I got in behind the wheel and started the motor. Then I looked at Murdoch again and said, Thanks for making like the Marines. Murdoch said, Maybe I won't be there next time. I put the car in gear and started rolling. I felt Murdoch's eyes were still on me, even when I turned the corner. And that is the second half of chapter 15. So, Amanda, what did you think? Oh, I have like a tummy ache, I think. Uh. It's just like a lot of stressfully bad choice making. It's like, I just don't. Phil is like dying and he's driving somewhere to nowhere he doesn't know where he's going clearly yeah he doesn't know what he's going to do there like he doesn't like like he's gonna go to this he's gonna go to he's gotta figure out where to park he's gotta (laughs) he's gotta find the right entrance yeah he's got to figure out what his fake name's gonna be as someone who looks like they should be in the hospital uh showing up at a lecture yeah (laughs) um there's just like a lot that maybe he could be thinking about right now. He is not thinking about any of it, I guarantee you. Um, he is, he's got an idea, which is the last he's- idea he had. <laughs> yeah, this is this is bad. Phil is bad, and he's doing bad. He he's continues do- to do bad all by himself. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <sighs> well, Amanda... We are towards the end. We have uh, we have two more chapters to go. 
uh, which is going to be broken into three episodes. Whoa. So we have We're three. Harry Pottering this, yeah, baby. Are, absolutely. <laughs> no, these, chap- these last two chapters are like long. Well, Amanda, I have bad news for you. Oh. Uh, in the next chapter, Phil goes to a Trump rally. Oh, dope. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't, but he does. Like, yeah. He definitely does. Uh, that is absolutely what's happening. Fuck. <laughs> I, this is, uh, okay. Yeah, all right. We got MAGA Madness coming up next, okay? You mean, we've sure. been talking about it yeah. this whole time. The, the like, MAGA vibes have been just, like, vibrating off of this book. I well, mean. well, those uh, MAGA chickens come to MAGA roost. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll be plunged into political darkness. Next time. Yay. On Dirt Cheap. Dirt Cheap is a Neon Hum podcast. It's hosted by me, Jeffrey Golden. And me, Amanda Meadows. Our producer is Carla Green. Associate producer is Chloe Chobel. The executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Editing by Vikram Patel. Original music by Chris Katinas. Additional tracks you hear on this episode are from Epidemic Sound. Our engineer and sound effects guy is Scott Somerville. We're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Dirt Cheap Pod and Instagram at Dirt Cheap Books. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next episode for another exciting chapter of Murder in the Glass Room. <laughs> <laughs>